0: I've had a lot of things on my heart uh, this week. A lot of thoughts and I I would think and pray about one thing and it would take me another direction. That would take me another direction. So um, I'm going to try my best with the Lord's help and and I have to have the Lord's help. And anyone who is called by God to preach can't preach a thing without the Lord's help. We try to do it in our own power and all we do is pontificate for a while and and lull you all to sleep. Uh, So hopefully... I'll look out and see y'all stay awake and know that the Lord helped me. Um, but as the Lord helps, I'll, I'll kind of wind through some of my thoughts so that, so that maybe you'll be able to follow how the Lord has been teaching me this week. So if you want to turn first with me, we'll go through a number of scriptures. You don't have to turn to all of them. But if you want to turn with me, I'll give you just a minute. We're going to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. <coughs> Nice thing about the on-off button on a mic like this is if I'm going to cough, I can just flip it off real quick. And y'all don't have to hear it. Alright. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them, and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you and ye shall be my sons and daughters saith the lord almighty having therefore these promises dearly beloved let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of god there are a number of messages you could preach just from just from that passage in fact i have before and that is kind of where my heart started this morning you could talk about what it means to be unequally yoked You could talk about coming out from among them. Um, There are a number of things that you can talk about in that. But as I thought and prayed about where to go this morning, what struck me is this is a letter that Paul has written to a church. This is a letter that he has written to a a, a redeemed people, a congregation of the living God. So he's not speaking to lost people at this time, and yet he's having to say, come out from among them. The Corinthians lived in a culture in which uh, heathenism and hedonism were on vibrant display everywhere you went. It was a very polytheistic society, a very sensual society. They were driven by their lusts and their passions in all that they did. And, And they were not a Jewish people, so they weren't ensconced in that tradition. But as they found the Lord, they had a hard time bringing themselves out of those traditions, of those traditions for idol worship and fornication and the various things that we see Paul preaching against in this letter. How different are we today? Even amongst our churches. How many of you have heard, and I I, I don't know if it's here, if it is, and we step on some toes, so be it, uh, but in, in larger churches, in the megachurches, there's a, there's a cultural drive to become relevant to the culture. Mm-hmm. Well, we can't reach this generation unless we become relevant. Mm-hmm. Unless we become like them. Mm-hmm. Unless we show that we can relate to them and we're just like them. But the Apostle Paul is here is saying the exact opposite thing. That's right. Amen. That's right. He's saying, come out from among them. Don't be like them. You are my people. You are holy. You are separate. So come out from among them. Distinguish yourselves. But how all too often we get caught in the trap. Us in our personal lives, we we all too often come to church on Sunday morning and we play the part there of the good church person. We may even raise our hands, we might even testify. And then on Monday, we play the good part of what we need to be in the world. If we're at the workplace and someone is telling inappropriate jokes or inappropriate stories, we laugh right along with them. Maybe we even tell a few of our own. We go out to the ball game and we disagree with a call And our language went from holy to everything but. There are a lot of examples we could give of the ways in which, in our daily lives, we strive to remain relevant. And even the congregations that say they are trying to follow the Lord are trying to be relevant by watering down the gospel. Well, we're making it pal- palatable to a generation that doesn't understand wrath or they're fearful of it or they just, don't, they just don't believe it that a loving God could create a hell. So let's water it down and make it palatable and make it relevant. And throughout the nation... Churches are splitting and are dividing over music choices. Now I know the last time I was here, we did some contemporary choruses. Today we did all traditional hymns. I think, uh, I think she was trying to be merciful to me, thinking I know those a little more. But believe it or not, I know some of the contemporary choruses too. Because there is nothing wrong with contemporary Christian music. Why? Because some of the lyrics in them, especially these days, some of them are being written very well so that they really and truly glorify God in ways that many of our hymns don't. But there's also nothing wrong with the old classic hymns of the faith that also lift up and honor the Lord God. There is a problem with lyrics that over glorify the sensuality of religion. There is a problem with lyrics that put a Overemphasis on me and my feelings and what the goodies that I'll get from Jesus. There's also a problem with when we incorporate songs like that because then we can have a worship band and then we become relevant because that's the music that the kids like. If it doesn't have a good beat, if it doesn't have drums the kids won't come. Okay, and, and I'm not knocking that but where does that end if you compromise and change your music so that kids will come well what if they come for the music and then they're offended by the message are you then going to change the message of the gospel so that they're not offended Are you going to go down that slippery slope so that you compromise everything that you've been taught and given by the Lord God to where we can't even recognize the church of Jesus Christ anymore, all in a quest to become relevant to our culture? Amen. The Lord says, come out from among them. Our culture today wants to talk only about the grace and the love of God. I'm not here to tell you today that God's grace is not amazing. I'm not here to tell you that God is not love personified. I am here to tell you that in a culture that doesn't like to think about wrath and justice and sin, that the righteousness and wrath of God is inextricably entwined to his grace and his mercy. You cannot have one without the other. So we must, we must hear and we must preach about both. Why do you need grace? Why do you need mercy if there's no standard for righteousness that we must meet? That's where my thoughts started. And in thinking about the justice, meeting the mercy of God. I go back to Numbers. Numbers chapter 21. If you want to turn there, I'll give just a second before I move on. Numbers 21, I'll give you some background. The children of Israel have come out of Egypt. Miraculously, they've been led out of Egypt. And then they've gone to the promised land and, well, they couldn't They couldn't cross over because even though they'd seen the Red Sea parted before their eyes in a miraculous way, they couldn't trust God to defeat the large people that lived there. So spies came back, two of them said, we can take the land, the rest said, no we can't, and everyone went with the ones that said, no we can't, and God said, okay, so you can't. Walk around for 40 years. So they're walking around, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And as they're wandering, God is miraculously providing them with everything they need. For 40 years, their clothes don't wear out. Y'all, I'm, I'm lucky if I can get a pair of socks to last six months. But for 40 years, their clothes didn't wear out. Their shoes didn't wear out. Again, how long do your shoes last? And they're quality crafted these days. Whereas before they were just pieces of leather with some straps on them. And they never wore out for 40 years. Oh, they're wandering in the wilderness and they don't know how are we going to have enough food. Okay. Well, God just rained food down on them. Now, it doesn't go into this. It talks a little bit about how it tasted and how it nourished them. But I imagine that the manna from heaven had every... Vitamin, every mineral, every protein, every building block of nutrition that they needed to sustain them. And just in case it didn't, from time to time he sent them pheasants or doves or whatever it was. Also, just into their hand, he provided everything they need. And yet, what do the children of Israel do? I could tell you, or you could look at your own life. I can look at mine. I have everything that I need. Do I have everything that I want? No, but I have clothes on this morning. Yeah. Amen. I had a roof over my head last night. Amen. I was fairly comfortable. That's right. We have a lovely facility to meet in as God's people this morning. And how many of you came hungry this morning, but not by choice? I don't see any hands. If there were any hands, you know what would have, you know what would happen if anyone came hungry not by choice? Some of you loving people in the congregation, God would move you and use you to feed that brother or sister. Because God provides everything that we need. Sometimes our needs just need to be redefined. But God provides everything that we need, and yet what do we do? We grumble. We complain. We say, oh, it was so much better back there. Oh God, you said you'd provide everything, and here we're wandering in a wilderness. That's what we do, and because there's nothing new under the sun, you can bet that's what the children of Israel did. They grumbled against God. They grumbled against Moses. And in chapter 21, verse 4, we see, and they, sojourn- and they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. Our soul loathes this manna that you have miraculously provided. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass... He lived. So let's put ourselves back in this story in a way. Imagine yourself, if you will, wandering through a wilderness, no direction, you're just kind of wandering. You don't know where you're going. You don't know when you're going to get there. You don't know how to go. You're just aimless. And the things that are provided for you, you fail to even see them as being provided. You never have enough to satisfy. There's no bread. There's no water. There's no money. There's no stylish clothes. There are no popular friends. There are no good concerts around here. There are no good sports venues. Think of the different things that we find to complain about. There are none of these things. And our soul loathes the things that you have provided. We're sick of it. We're tired of it. We're tired of the same old thing. And when we read this story often, and, and I started the same way, we think of God in his anger raining down punishment by sending serpents, by sending venomous snakes Now imagine yourself again back in that wilderness and you're wandering and you're wandering and and you're despairing and you're just trudging along and all of a sudden you're bitten. You're bitten by a rattlesnake. What do you do? I don't know how many of you are outdoorsmen. I know what I would do. And I'm not an outdoorsman either, but I know what our instinct is, is to do everything we can think of to mollify the bite. Everything we've possibly read, even though they say not to cut it and suck the venom out anymore, we do that before we do nothing. We find something to tie around a tourniquet. We call for help. We search for help. We, we keep walking. Oh, i got to get help. i got to get help. And then when we can't do that anymore, we'll lay down and try the tourniquet. And we do everything in our power to save ourselves. That's the preservation instinct, Correct. And I'm sure that in the wilderness they did the same thing. A snake bit them and they knew. They knew, just like today, if, if, if you get bitten by a rattlesnake, I mean, if it's a copperhead, you're going to hurt for a little bit, but you're going to be okay. Same thing if it's a cock mouth, might be a little worse unless it's a little child. You get bitten by a rattlesnake and you don't have it treated. You're going to be in for a long road of pain. And if it's enough of a bite... You won't make it. But on the way out of this world, it's going to hurt. So we try to prevent that. They knew that too. They knew that once they were bitten, it was a long haul, a long, miserable haul, until they finally departed. And I'm sure they did everything they could. And they felt as though God was punishing them. So Moses, speak to the Lord for us. Tell him, tell him we have sinned. And the Lord provides a way that is so contrary to our instinct that it boggles the mind. Craft a snake out of brass, put on a stick, and put it up on a pole. And when someone's bitten, if they'll look on it, they'll live. Are you picturing in your mind how that is contrary to to the instinct to do everything you can in your own power to save yourself? And that's what these Israelites did. They did everything in their power to save themselves. But then the plan that the Lord made, and that Moses instituted for them, was stop trying, do nothing, trust look at the snake on the pole and you'll be saved. How does that make sense with with our current way of thinking? And I'm sure some of them thought, but Moses, we have to do something. We have to wrap it. We have to bandage it. We We have to do something and they keep looking down or they're looking at others to help them. And no one else can help them. The only way that they can be saved is to give up all of their efforts and simply look up. Look up to the only place where salvation is found. They have to give up. They have to surrender. They have to, in effect, be willing to die before they can be saved. That runs counter to our instinct. But, you know, that was the mercy of God. Not only that he provided a way out, but that he provided a way out that was so simple. I'll give you an escape, and you don't have to do anything. Just look up and trust me, and you'll be saved. What a great plan. We live in a culture that loves gimmies. We love free stuff. In fact, I think of the irony that we have an overabundance of people that look to the government to say, give me, give me, give me, help me, save me. I won't do anything. I don't have to do anything except look to the government and they will help me. But ask them to do the same for God. And they balk at that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We'll surrender to a man. We'll surrender to 535 men who have limited power, limited, very limited knowledge, even more limited (laughs) wisdom. But we won't surrender to the one who spoke a universe into existence and has the almighty power to hold everything in his hand. But we won't surrender to that because of our pride. So we keep that in mind. And then my, mind's turned, my mind turned to John 3. John 3. And if you want to turn there, you can. If not, I probably won't wait very long, so turn fast. Um, it's a familiar story. John chapter 3, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Another, maybe even better translation says, Except a man be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? You know, we could preach a whole message on this too. This is, Nicodemus was not an idiot. You know, we tend to characterize these questions literally and forget that Nicodemus was a very educated man and this kind of question would have been a popular uh, Hebrew rhetorical device. Because what Jesus said about being born again was so revolutionary and so new and so kind of ludicrous sounding that he has to ask a question equally as ludicrous on the other side. He didn't actually think Jesus was saying enter in the womb a second time. But that's another story for another day. Jesus answered in verse 5, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen Now we know what comes after that. It's the most popular verse in the Bible in our in our culture. But I want us to beware, especially as we live in a culture where so many of our churches are struggling to be relevant rather than pulling themselves out of the world and distinguishing themselves and making themselves to be holy. Are they really even saved? I started out with the idea of being unequally yoked. And if you ever look into those words, that word is zergomai. Yoked is, you know, the yoke, zergomai. And hetero means different or other. But the Hebrew language is so cool that we have one word in English that can mean different shades of things. But The Hebrew and the Greek both have multiple words that have different shades of meaning. Kind of like the word love. In English, I love the Lord. I love my wife. I also love pizza. But I would hope that love means different things when I'm talking about that. If I love pizza the same way I love my wife, I need some couples counseling or something. But we only have one word. Well, we also only have one word for other. Well, if it's not this one, it's another one. But in Greek, hetero means other, different, of a different nature, of a different kind. Whereas the word allos, A-L-L-O-S, means other, of a like kind. So when Jesus tells the disciples in John 14, I must go away so that I can send you another comforter, it's an alos paraclete. Uh, I don't know exactly how the the case is, but the two words are alos, other of the same kind, paraclete, advocate, comforter, whichever it may be. And what he's saying there is that the Holy Spirit that I will send is different from me, but the same as me. He's other than me, but the same nature. You understand what I'm saying? But then Paul talks another time, and he talks about those that preach another gospel, which is no gospel. And the word he uses there is hetero. Because it is other, it is separate from, it is distinct from, but it's also a different kind, a different nature. And so when Paul is telling us not to be unequally yoked, and not to be heterozergomai, he's telling us not to be partnered with others of a different nature. So now when I think of congregations who may be well-meaning, They may be well-meaning. But they're striving more to be relevant to a culture than they are to be relevant and faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder, are they really different? Are they really different from the world? Because we also have a culture that has pushed this John 3.16 because of the word believe. Believe is another word that in English only has one, one word but multiple shades of meaning. How many of you believe in the Lord God? Show of hands. What, what, yeah, alright. How many of you believe in Santa Claus? How many believe in the tooth fairy? How many believe it may rain Thursday? but that's the word believe the word believe in English can mean a variety of things but we so commonly use believe, can you believe this what they're talking about is can you capture in your mind and give intellectual assent to something that is a fact Which is different from the kind of belief that surrenders totally to something. Which is the word believe in the Greek, "pistuo." It means to trust. To trust. To trust fully and completely. So it's telling to me when I read John 3 that right before Jesus says that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Right before he says that, and we like to think about that because we'll, be, I, I believe in Jesus. And how many people in our culture say, "Yeah, I believe in Jesus." And then if you press on me, yeah, I believe he was a good teacher. I believe he was a nice man. I believe he was able to do some neat things. But are they willing to give their life for him? Are they willing to give up everything to follow Him? Right before Jesus says that, with the word believe. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him. Remember the serpent in the wilderness. In order to be saved when they were in the wilderness, they had to surrender They had to be willing to give up all effort on their part. They had to be willing. No, don't touch it. Don't put a tourniquet on it. Don't do any of that. You don't have time for that. All you have time for is to not try anything. And look to the serpent. Trust. If you don't do something about it, you're going to die. When you're bitten by a serpent, if you don't do something about it, you will be destroyed. And God says, Don't do anything about it. I've done it. Look to the serpent on the snake. Same thing Jesus is saying there is when you feel the bite of sin, when you feel the sting of sin, that's that serpent. Just like in the Garden of Eden. That's that serpent that nicks at your heels. And you get that bite. And if it's not remedied, it's a long, painful death. And we've cried out. Lord, help! We've sinned! And just as he had Moses erect the serpent in the wilderness... The Lord had a plan for later in life. Everything in the Old Testament is a picture of what Jesus would do. He even told us that. That he didn't come to, to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. He is the fulfillment of every picture that we've, that we've had. So just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, as God's plan to deliver the people when they cried out and would trust him, so was the Son of Man lifted up. So that when we feel the sting of sin, when we've been bitten, and we know that we are hopeless, And we must do something. The only thing that we can do is nothing. All of our good works. All of our good deeds. All of our trying. All of our striving. All of our tears. Will do nothing to help us. The only thing that we can do. Is look up to the cross. And trust him. Amen. That is the kind of belief that Jesus is talking about when he says that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's not a matter of giving intellectual assent. And I'm worried, I'm scared for people that have been told that, well, if you prayed that prayer in new minute with all your heart, well, then you're saved. Well, what right do I have to tell someone that they're saved? I'm a preacher, but all I can do is tell you the gospel plan. But if you look to the cross, the Lord will let you know when you're saved. I'm worried that people have been deceived into thinking that if they just give intellectual assent to who Jesus says he is without coming to a personal knowledge, a personal relationship, and surrendering their all and being willing to die if that's what it takes in order to be saved. How about you this morning? Have you had that moment? See, I said that the justice and the mercy of God are inextricably intertwined. Because there comes a time when we feel the sting of sin. There comes a time when we're bitten by a serpent. And we know that we're going to die. And I'm not talking about a physical death here. As we get older, we all know that's coming too. But there comes a time when we feel that nip at our heel or wherever it may be and we're filled with dread. And like the psalm said, the, the pangs of hell got hold on me. And we think, oh, God is punishing me. I feel guilty, and that's punishment. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, when you feel the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, that is, yes, it is justice of God because he is righteous above all and has has every right in the universe to punish us and even destroy us for our sinfulness. Yes. Those pangs, those tinges of guilt and the fear of death are his justice, but it's also his mercy. Because were we to never feel that sting, we wouldn't even know we were bitten. And we wouldn't know that we needed a Savior. So again, I ask you, have... Have you felt that sting? Have you felt that convicting power? And have you had that time where you look to the cross, forsaking all else, forsaking all other methods? Look only to him and find deliverance. Or have you by chance simply come to church all of your life, especially since we live in the south? And that's just what you do. We're in the Bible Belt. This generation is changing, so that's not so much the case. But have you just come to church all your life, learned all the memory verses in Sunday school, went to VBS a lot, and at some point said, Someone asked you, Do you believe in Jesus? And you said, Well, yeah. Oh, well, good. So you're a Christian. It takes more than an intellectual assent, folks. Because as in the beginning of chapter three, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, when someone is born, their identity changes. Did you know that? What do we call a baby up until it is born? We don't call it a baby. We call it a fetus. Until the moment that it's born, it is considered fetal. So what changes that we change the name? Now, the personhood is the same. I mean, when, when we were expecting my daughters, both of us, uh, both Jessica and I talked to her little tummy, and we and we'd call the child by name. But scientifically speaking, until the child exits, it's a fetus. And then it breathes there and it becomes a baby. So the identity somewhat changes. It becomes a new thing. And that's a bad parallel, but it's the only parallel I can think of right now to what happens when someone is born again. They were one thing, but you look to the cross. You surrender your all, and the Holy Spirit comes upon you to give you new life, to deliver you from sin, to redeem you from the pit, and you become something new. You become a new creation. You still maintain your identity. I'm still Bobby. I was Bobby before I got saved, and I'm Bobby after I'm saved. And I still have the memories of before, but I'm different. Praise God, I'm different. Thank God I'm not who I once was. And it's still a process. Thank God I'm not what, or thank God I'm not going to be this forever. There is a day that I'll be even better. Yeah, that's right. But I'm new. I was made new. I'm not what I once was. So now, in order to be unequally yoked, I can't be with the people that I was before. I can't be with the crowd that I was before or do the things I did before because that was the other and now I'm an other of a different nature. I'm different and I'm new. So I ask you today, have you been changed? Have you looked to the cross and been born again so that you're different and changed? And it's somewhat a rhetorical question because I know many, or if not most, if not all of us here will say Yes. I've had that experience with the Lord. But then let's take that a step further. If you have, if you are changed and different and new right now, then why do we cling to the things of the old? Why are we striving, whether in our churches or in our personal lives, to be relevant to a culture of death? This world is a culture of death. It wants to destroy us. It wants to destroy everything of God and yet we cling to it because we're afraid that we'll be lonely or seen as a weirdo or an outcast or different or just because this fleshly thing that I have to reside in wants something else. So I encourage you today to think about these things. Number one, Have have you looked to the cross and surrendered all? Have you been willing to die, to lay it all down, to follow Christ? If not, have you felt that nip at your ankle or your heel? Because if you feel that, if you feel the pang of death, the sting of death on you, look to the cross. Have you been born again? Have you been made new by the life-giving power of the Spirit of the living God? Everything before that is not life. Jesus is life. He even said so much. I am the truth and the life. (laughs) Have you received that life? And if so, then examine yourselves We want to know why our churches aren't growing, even though we're being relevant. It's because the Lord's not going to bless that because it's not faithful to Him. Do we want to know why our families aren't flourishing when we're doing everything we know to do right in the world's eyes? Because you're doing everything that seems right in the world's eyes. Follow Him. Don't be unequally yoked with those things that are not of your nature. If you've been born again, you are no longer of the world. Instead, partner with the Lord God. Follow Him. Be faithful to Him. Now, I don't don't know if anything I've said today resonates with you but it teaches me it steps on my toes because there are many many ways in which I still cling to the things of the world there are many ways in which I disappoint the Lord every day because I just cling to the things of the world and, and there are things that we don't even think of as sins do you realize our culture, our culture has permissible sins now so do our churches gluttony is a sin and yet look at me I haven't missed many meals. In fact, I've stocked up in case I do. But do you realize that shows that I'm not taking good care of the temple of the living God. Now God is merciful. God is gracious. I don't feel condemned in that. There is therefore now no condemnation for them that fear Him. God forgives. But at the same time, I know that Gluttony is only one of several ways in which I cling to the fleshful lusts. So examine yourselves. What can you do to extricate yourself from the world? To become unyoked from the things of the world? How do you need in your life and in your church too? I'm a guest here so I, I don't know where your church is but if you've been praying for some kind of breakthrough or some kind of growth that you've not seen examine yourselves is there some way that you can come out from among the world examine yourselves have you truly been born again are you truly different because you can't come out from among them if you're just like them only if you're different only if you're changed and you can't change yourself. No child yet birthed to themselves of their own free will. You can't just choose to be born again. The Lord draws us. Like with that prick to the heel. He draws us. He convicts us. And then as we repent and surrender everything to him. He takes it. And he changes us. And then we're free from the shackles that bound us to the world. And with his power. We can come out from among them. And as we follow him faithfully. He will bless. It may not be in the ways that we want. Or the way that we desire. Because sometimes we want blessings of a carnal nature. But all we have to do is trust that he blesses. So. And I'm doing that now uh, because I don't know that anything I've said today resonates or is a blessing to any of you all. I don't know your hearts, but I know that it's been a journey for me. And I just trust that as the Lord speaks to my heart, maybe he's had something there for you. I'm not much of one for invitations, but uh, yes, uh, where is she? Yes, Cassie prepares to come and lead a song. I can't invite anyone to an altar. That's not my place. That is the Lord's. Jesus Christ's place so all I can do in terms of invitation I'll ask you to stand and we can sing this last song together but if the Lord is speaking to your heart and you need to deal with something and it doesn't have to be that you're feeling convicted of sin and need to seek the Lord for salvation but if you're feeling that conviction I pray that you will and you don't have to do it here you can do it at your seat you can do it at your car you can do it at home wherever you build an altar and lay yourself down on it and look to the cross the Lord will save you anywhere. So if you need that, I pray you'll seek Him. And know that this place is open if you want to pray. It is a holy place and we'll pray with you. And we'll pray for you. But it doesn't just have to be that. Maybe there's something that you need to let go of. And you need a special touch from the Lord to help you come out from among the world in some way. Maybe you have a family member that you want to pray for for that same thing. Whatever it may be, I invite you to come, to pray in your seat, to But above all, let's worship the Lord because He is good. And He's always good. So as we sing Alleluia, let's keep in mind that Alleluia certainly, it, it just means praise the Lord. So as we sing, let's lift our voices and lift our hearts also. Let's embrace the mercy with which He embraces us. Let's celebrate His grace. Let's celebrate the salvation He gives when we look to the cross. And let's not just sing words because, oh, we've done this chorus a hundred times. But with a fresh new look, always thinking about how the mercies of God are new every morning. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I mean, sing it with heart. Sing it with voice. Follow the Lord as he leads you if you need to pray or pray in your seat or whatever it may be.